from Car Rigs and Ingram, this is It Figures, the CRI podcast, an accounting, advisory, and industry-focused podcast for business and organization leaders, entrepreneurs, and anyone who is looking to go beyond the status quo. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CRI It Figures podcast. My name is Robert Lemon. I'm going to be talking today about some governmental COVID-19 questions. For previous listeners, they've already heard us do this format before. It's a Q&A session with a few of our partners here from CRI. With me today, first off, is Ray Roberts. Ray, for people who don't know you, do you want to introduce yourself? You bet. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate you uh, inviting me today. My name is Ray Roberts. I'm a uh, the audit partner, government audit partner out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at, way out west. And uh, we had our first rainstorm for the year, I think. So that's good. We're up to almost a half an inch for the whole six months. So that's great. <laughs> nice. But anyway, I kind of help out and work on the government and not-for-profit industry line and do these podcasts from now from time to time. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, Ray, you, you've been with me every step of the way to, to help me. And two of the other people who've joined us in the past and are back again for this episode. First off, I'll, I'll go to Jason Harp. Jason, you want to introduce yourself quickly? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, I'm Jason Harp. Glad to be here today. I'm a, a government audit partner out of our Birmingham, Alabama office uh, and look forward to answering a few questions today. Thank you, Jason. And the last of the three amigos with me today is David Alvarez. You want to, you want to introduce yourself, David? Yeah, thanks, uh, Robert. Uh, I'm an audit partner in our Tampa office. I manage our government practice here in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, David. That's awesome. I'm really glad to have these three guys. For previous listeners, they'll know that I've got some really smart colleagues who, who I can turn to and ask questions to, and that's what we're going to do today. As all this COVID funding information comes out, you know, we've been tracking it and, and all the partners here I've been doing a great job of getting staying up to date on the latest information. So that's what we're going to talk about today is what they found. Because on, the, on our last episode, we actually were talking about one of the states, Louisiana, has got quite ahead of the other states in terms of distributing the CARES Act coronavirus relief fund money. We've got colleagues w- working on that, and, and that's how we, we know. But at the time of our last recording, Alabama was still kind of figuring out its process, but I believe, Jason, there's been changes since then. So do you want to tell us what you're seeing in your state? So, yeah, Rob, uh, about a week ago, the director of finance in Alabama actually sent out a a memo and a form uh, for all the local governments to submit the uh, eligible expenditures to be funded, uh, at least in Alabama, under the CARES Act allocation. Uh, and it's a relatively straightforward form. Uh, of course, it gets back into things we've already talked about on previous podcasts, which is, you know, necessary expenditures related to COVID, uh, not budgeted as of March 27th, and, you know, expenditures that are incurred from March 1st to December the 30th. And uh, so in Alabama, you'll complete this form and basically email it back to the uh, Department of Finance uh, to be to be compensated. And there's kind of similar to, I guess, in another hat, PPP loans, it's a certification uh, that's basically, you know, the the local government filling the form out will have to certify that everything's accurate and correct related to the eligible reimbursement expenditures. And then they do a good job of sort of 
having a schedule that breaks things out and there's uh, PPP equipment, uh, cleaning, medical, teleworking expenses, training, payroll, those type items. Uh, and that's where you would feel that, you know, those out, they also do a good job of, of really giving examples of those type um, eligible expenses. So PPP would be obviously face mask, gloves, hand sanitizer, uh, medical would be thermometers, testing kits, uh, you know, teleworking expenses. That may be where some of the larger amounts could possibly be with laptops, uh, you know, increased Wi-Fi, computer equipment, and of course, any payroll items that are directly attributable to COVID, those would, would be in. And you would submit this um, along with supporting documentation, almost like in an invoice type of, I would imagine, format or, or or that type of item. And in Alabama, the way they've done it is they've actually gone in, the state has and done a budgeted allocation per local government unit uh, for for expenditures that could be reimbursed. So I'm not sure if other states are, are doing it quite that way. And I'm not really certain on how Alabama did the allocation, but they're pretty sizable amounts per local government. So um, and then if anything's not used uh, by December the 30th, it reverts back to the state. So that's what Alabama's done since we last um, had our previous podcast. And it's certainly helpful to have something out that local governments can begin using uh, to get some relief as far as uh, reimbursements for these expenditures. Good. That, that sounds like Alabama really has given a good structure to the process and very clear instructions. and. As we've been saying on the previous episodes, it's all moving very quickly, happening very fast, and, and uh, gradually now we're starting to see more and more states start to be getting ready to distribute that money. And obviously Alabama is the next one on the list that I know we're, we're, we're in there working with them and, and uh, getting involved with. So, yeah, I'm sure I haven't seen anything in Florida just yet to, to specify their process and give details on their process for distributing the money, but I'm sure it's not too much further behind. Well, I uh, do appreciate that in update as well. I do have some other questions, obviously. We always have a good number of questions on these things. And um, what I want to point out, what, what we're going to be covering a lot of today in these questions is new guidance that the Treasury has put out in the past few days. So for anyone who wants to do a bit of research themselves, the Treasury website does have a good FAQ document. And we're going to cover some of the highlights now. And and one of the questions is a good one, given where everyone's at right now. And it, it kind of asks, you know, it, must a stay-at-home order or other public health mandate be in effect in order for a government to provide assistance to small businesses using payments from the coronavirus relief fund? So, you know, as, as we're getting back to work and these orders are being re re removed, does that impact whether, you know, we can give assistance to small businesses with, it, for, with this funding? Anyone want to take that? I'll take that one, Rob. This is Ray. I, I, you know, it's the guidance is, I think, pretty clear. The, there's money set aside for small businesses to for the cost of business interruption caused by the, the potential closures and the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, but such decisions, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a stay at home or a public health mandate if the government, you know, if that city, county, whatever it might be, that's uh, in that area determines that such expenditures are necessary to respond to the public health emergency. You know, would it be easier if you had a, a closure or a stay at home order? You bet. But is it absolutely mandatory? No, I think you, 
like anything, I mean, it's just document why and how you made that decision and what expenses you're going to have and make sure those would apply. Uh, I don't think you'll have any problems at all in those areas. Good advice. Good, good, clear answer. Good, good advice. One of the things we've talked a lot about, and I'm going to get to you on this next question is, you know, we're talking about the funding distribution, how it's a lot of it went to the state to trickle down through. And, and this next question kind of hits on that. And it, it asks, should states that have received a payment from the CARES Act money transfer funds to local governments that did not receive the direct payments from the Treasury? The, the direct payments were the ones for the big uh, cities and, and counties with over 500,000. So if, again, this question is saying, hey, if, if the state got money, um, should it be transferred to the local governments that didn't already get the, the money for because they were a big government? So what's, what does anyone know about that? Uh, I'm on a roll here, so I'll go ahead and take it. This is Ray. It's, uh, I think it's pretty clear that two, pl- two places get money. The, the towns or counties, over half a million people, they get money directly from the, the federal government, and the states get uh, money from the uh, federal government. All the total amount of funds have already been determined. So what will happen is that the states will take their pot of money that they receive and pass it out to the local governments, basically based on per capita uh, populations. So, so the, the direct larger ones, half a million people or more, they'll get their money directly from the federal government. And the ones smaller than half a million will get it a pass through uh, through the state. But everybody ultimately will get their money in that area. Yeah, and I know all, all the big direct payments, they went out uh, early on in the process because of the some of my clients have already been get, getting theirs and asking me. But yeah, lo- lots of these smaller governments, I think that's a good good summary that, uh, Ray, that these smaller governments are still waiting on their money. It's going to come through the state. Um, and, and this is what we're talking about with what Jason's saying in Alabama. They've set up their process now for these smaller governments to get what they need and get their portion of the pie. So hopefully all the other states start following soon and, and getting it moving through to the, the smaller governments. I'll move on to our next question. Let's, let's have another one here. Um, this one just asks, are costs associated with increased solid waste capacity and eligible use of payments? So this, this came up because it actually I, I heard a client asking specifically whether they can use you know, um, the money f- because of the extra solid waste um, burden that they're having because people are at home more using more um, solid waste requirements. So uh, this question, just to repeat, you know, are, are the costs associated with the increased solid waste capacity and eligible use of payments from the CARES Act of, of CARES Act money? So, anyone know, know anything about this? Hey, Rob, this is Jason. I, I'll I'll take that one, and that that's a really good question. And I guess we've been so focused on the the front end of funding, uh, we probably <laughs> haven't thought about the the backside of that, which would obviously be some waste. And, and specifically, you know, I think it would be some, you know, maybe significant costs would be disposing of PPE. Obviously, that's some pretty dangerous stuff. Uh, and there may be some costs associated with with disposing of that. And certainly those costs would, would be eligible, as would any other, you know, uh, solid waste cost that, that has any kind of COVID impact, as you, as you mentioned. So I think that's something that's unique and certainly something to give some thought to as you're gathering up expenses that could be reimbursable is don't don't forget about any cost related uh, to 
to disposing of equipment or, or anything that's used, you know, related to the, the pandemic. Very good. Yeah. And th that was an interesting one, but I'm glad you pointed out it's, you know, it's also the PPE and all, all the stuff that's happened to be disposed of. I didn't, I didn't think about that with my, when I introduced the question, but obviously that's a big part. So I'm, I'm glad that that's been specified by the treasury and clarified. So that's good information. What, what about this one then? So is it okay for payments from the, the CARES Act funding to be used to cover across the board hazard pay for employees during during the state of emergency? Is, is that allowed for to cover hazard pay just like across the board? And I'll grab that one also, Rob. This is Jason again. And, and the answer to that is no. If there's just an across the board, you know, local government saying we're going to raise everybody's pay because we just feel like everybody needs hazard pay just because uh, that that wouldn't work. It's got to be more specific to that than that. And, you know, generally, you and I know we've mentioned this before on previous podcasts, it, it would probably be something that's, you know, public safety oriented, public health, uh, some type of health care, human services, anything that's just, uh, you know, substantially dedicated to to mitigating or responding specifically to COVID-19, you know, the, the health emergency piece of that, uh, that that's really what it's designed for. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously some limitations just with general payroll expense. So I think you'd have to be careful with that and not expect total reimbursement. If, if a local government just said, we'd like to give everybody, you know, a bump up just because, you know, that's just what we want to do. I've worked with, I know one, large local government in our area that's that's got a pretty you know stringent policy on what would qualify as, as hazardous hazardous duty pay and in my opinion i think they would meet this the way they went about it um so you know i, I would hope everybody kind of has a policy that's specific to to what constitutes hazardous duty pay and i would i would imagine that in that case it probably you know would would encompass the covid 19 you know direct expenses or direct, you know, matters with that. So you can get the reimbursement, but certainly not just an across the board. Hey, we're giving everybody a, you know, a, a payroll increase for hazardous duty and we expect to be reimbursed. I don't think that would, that would really work under the, the CARES Act. So it's kind of like having to go back to those original three CARES Act kind of eligible criteria. Is, is that right? Where you, obviously we know two of the criteria, it's got to be not budgeted. It's got to be in a certain time window, but the third one, it's, it's, I think I heard you saying it's got to be related to the response to the, the, the pandemic. It, it has to be people directly responding to the, to the health situation, right? That, that's exactly correct. I think, you know, you, you, there could be, I guess, some thought you might match two of those, which is not budgeted and it falls within the time period. But I, I think, you know, and across the board, you'd have trouble connecting the dot or the dots to get to the, uh, you know, related specifically to, to covid um, matters. Yeah, so it's about keeping those original core criteria in mind at all times when, when seeing what's el eligible. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, and I'm glad we've got David for this. I think you're going to be knocking this out of the park, David, because we're going to talk single audit for a little moment because I've had a bunch of clients ask me, hey, this is federal money. Do the federal grant Requi requirements and single audit testing requirements apply? Is, is this going to go on my CIFA, my schedule of uh, expenditures of federal awards next year? You know, people are, are not familiar with this funding, so wondering how, how, what, what are the strings attached? And so that's where, where I want to start with, you know, David, does, does this CARES Act money 
qualify for single audit? Yeah, so the, the, you know, the answer to that one is definitive yes in what the, the Treasury has put out. Um, and it is a little confusing because, you know, this is a new funding source for many people. Um, you know, we've not seen much direct money from the Treasury, um, but this is going to qualify for single audit purposes. And um, governments will need to identify those expenditures that they've um, paid with this funding and put those amounts on their CFO. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you are here, David. I'm sorry I picked on you for that question, but I know you're you're a super duper smart guy with single audit stuff. So um, I'm glad you're up to speed on that. So, hey, uh, Rob. Hey, you know, I, I'm thinking that we had a couple small uh, cities realize that hey, this is going to be the first year they have ever had a single audit because of this money. It's put them over the limit. Just to watch out for that, it might cause you uh, some. Uh, issues in that going forward. Yes, definitely. Because I work with some some of the smaller guys as well who don't often get uh, enough funding to to require a single audit. So it's going to be new territory for a lot of people. Um, obviously, that limit just being seven hundred and fifty thousand. That's going to a lot of people are going to trip that for the first time in this, this next year and have to go through the single audit fun. But uh, um, David, if you don't mind, I'm going to pick on you a little bit longer and just because we're talking single audit stuff. And then educate me a bit here as, as well, because so this coronavirus relief fund money we've just established subject to single audit. But, you know, what are the requirements? How can the money be spent? Can you educate, educate us a little bit more on what hoops people have to jump through? Yeah, so I think the, from a really a, a high level picture, kind of following up on what Jason had said, of, you know, general uses. So in the single audit world. Um, you know, we're, typical, we're typically used to using the terms allowable costs and allowable activities. And I think Jason has kind of explained kind of big picture what those items are for this coronavirus relief fund. But when we talk about single audit and really where the pain is, is really all those other things that uh, the Uniform Guidance and the Single Audit Act uh, uh, requires. So all those other compliance requirements, um, we've gotten a lot of questions is, from you know, some people out there is, do all these other things really apply to these dollars? And um, the answer is yes. So the, you know, the, the uh, uniform guidance goes, you know, really starts with um, internal controls. So there still has to be internal controls around expenditures of these funds. And then all the other compliance pieces that we still have to have controls around all those compliance pieces. So this goes, you know, really starts with internal controls. Um, you know, works its way, you know, kind of all the way through subrecipient uh, uh, monitoring that I want to talk about in just a minute because that's an interesting one. Then, you know, it gets into audit requirements. So we have the same audit requirements with these dollars that we do with any other, um, you know, federal dollars or in certain states, state dollars that uh, governments uh, are used to. And I'm glad that Ray brought that up that, you know, there will be probably a lot of governments that have not had single audits in the past. Uh, that will. Um, you know, when we're dealing with single audits, typically really the first thing that we'll look for is a CFDA number. Um, you know, this money is coming through the Department of Treasury. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of Department of Treasury grants out there. You know, there's, you know, if you actually looked at the, the kind of the listing today, and there's really two main ones, which is pretty low for a, you know, a major federal department. Um, the, you know, the treasuries put out, they do have a number, they do have a CFDA number that they're going to use, but it says complete pending completion of the registration. So that's also going to mean, you know, 
what are all the specific rules with that CFDA number in relation uh, you know, to compliance? And you know, that's one of the big questions that we still have. Um, is you know, really what are the details that CFDA number going to be? Um, you know, if it kind of came through another department, um, you know, a lot of de- a lot of individual departments have similar types of compliance requirements, but because it's coming through the treasury. And we don't have a lot to compare to in the treasury. It's still some questions over well, what specifics might they kind of uh, slide in there. Um, you know, one thing to point out, I mentioned uh, uh, subrecipients. Um, you know, in the, the Single Audit Act, when you do receive money and you pass money on to someone else that's really going to perform the ultimate service, there are some subrecipient uh, uh, requirements. And kind of the main things you know, that we want to be aware of there um, so this would be for you know states, and states are, are used to dealing with subrecipient uh, issues. Um, but even governments that have over five hundred thousand population, they might not deal with a lot of subrecipient issues uh, at this point. Um, so really, the first thing is they need to make sure that everyone they provide this money to uh, is aware of the CFDA number and is aware of the compliance requirements. Um, that person who's also you know responsible for subrecipient monitoring is you know they they need to be aware of if the person they're passing the money on to is, is getting a single audit. So if they trigger the seven hundred fifty thousand dollar threshold, is that recipient getting an audit? Is the pass through uh, entity looking at that uh, audit report? Um, you know, there's some some information that I've come across where. You know, this money can be provided to for-profit uh, uh, entities as well as the ending subrecipient. Now, while they don't qualify for single audit requirements, the pass-through entity would still be responsible to ensure that those end users do have um, some policies and procedures in place to ensure that the money is being uh, properly spent. Um, you know, this is an area where it'll be new for quite a few people in the subrecipient uh, area that um, you know, people need to really be, be aware of. Um, you know, kind of the one thing at the end that they did put in as an eligible expenditure is that these funds can be used uh, to pay to pay audit expenses. So, you know, there, there likely will be, you know, some people that have never had a single audit before that will get one. Um, you know, for people that do get this money, um, they, you know, based on just kind of thresholds and where the level of expenditures fall is that your, your auditors will be auditing this as a major program. So there'll likely be some additional costs and these funds can be used to pay that additional cost that uh, entities will likely have to incur. So at least if the money you receive makes your audit more expensive, well, the money you receive will also cover those costs for you, right? That is, that is correct. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned in there that there's there's a CFDA number. I know you said it's not completed yet; it's still pending. But for for people who want to be ahead and be ready to research it when it gets finalized, what what's the number that they've assigned to it, please? Yeah. So currently, the you know they've they've identified it as twenty one point oh one nine, and twenty one is that uh, Department of Treasury grouping of uh, programs. And like I said, there's not. There's not too many other treasury programs, but it'll be 21.09. That's what they're projecting at this point. 
Okay, well, I'm going to be doing my research on 21.019 when that becomes effective. But that, that's a really good summary because, like I say, a lot of people have been asking whether there's single audit implications with this funding. And now we know for sure the Treasury are clearly saying yes. And here's, the, here's some of the rules, some of the guidance on it. So that's a great summary. Thank you, David. I'm going to try and take us to the home stretch. We're, we're running longer than usual, but uh, I got a couple more good questions I think are worth touching on. Um, so is it possible, does anyone know whether, whether it's possible for a state to impose restrictions on transfers of funds to local governments? You know, can a state restrict what they're passing through to the local governments? Hey, Rob, I'll take this. This is Ray. Yeah, I, I think they can. You know, the, the, the law itself, the Social Security Act, 601D of the Social Security Act, the guidance, you know, from the CARES Act itself and some other applicable requirements like in the Single Audit Act or whatever, they have some limited ability for restrictions to facilitate uh, to, to the states to restrict the contributions to the uh, individual local governments. But the federal government wants to facilitate any, do anything and everything they can to get that money passed out. And they're just a limited set of exceptions to that. If they follow those, they'd be all right. Any other restrictions are not permissible. So I, I'm, if you're going to restrict it in any way, I think you need to make sure your ducks in a row on this one and maybe get a law firm or a CPA firm in there to say, hey, uh, I, I, get somebody else to buy off on it because it, it, I think it's pretty pretty rare that it's going to happen, but it can happen. Okay, good, good answer. Possible, but not common. That's a, that's a good summary. A couple of quick ones here. I've, I've heard stuff talking about tax anticipation notes because of tax deadlines and payment deadlines being pushed and you know how a government's going to maintain their funding with these tax uh, tax delays. So there was a question specifically asking that you know if someone's required to, to issue some tax anticipation notes to make up for these revenue shortfalls, are the expenses associated with the issuance of the, 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 the notes? Are those eligible uses of, of CARES Act money? Hey, Rob, this is Ray. I, I think it is. I mean, it, I think the, the original law is clear. If you spend anything because of COVID-19 and it wasn't budgeted uh, previously, then it's deductible or uh, reimbursable. So you have, for instance, on these TANs, you would have the accrued interest on that. You'd have administrative and transactional costs, uh, Payments to advisors, underwriters associated like that. The cost, all the costs associated with issuing these bonds and notes. So the only thing you can't deduct or get reimbursed for is the actual principal amount of that, uh, those notes. Everything else, in my opinion, would be clearly uh, reimbursable. Excellent. Yeah, so I think it, it comes back as we've done a couple of times now. It's all about those three key uh kind of criteria that we've discussed a few times uh, for, for eligible expenditures. And uh, I think one of the keys, though, is going to be, you know, it might be eligible, but is the money still available? Because as we've seen, you know, in Alabama, they've started to distribute, or they're getting ready to distribute down to the, to the smaller local governments. And Louisiana's already going through the process. Florida will be coming soon, but I'm sure that it's going to get consumed pretty quickly, all, all, all the funding. And uh, let's hope there's a, enough to cover everyone's costs, but that remains to be seen. 
All right. Well, I've gone a bit long today, but that is where I'm going to wrap it up. So I really just want to thank you three gents for helping and, and answering these questions. I think there's a lot of good information. As always, the information is changing very, very quickly and, and we encourage everyone to stay abreast of the latest guidance and be doing the, uh, looking at the good websites like the Treasury uh, website and, and all the places for latest information. Also would recommend people check out the CRICPA.com website. You know, we've got a whole host of COVID related resources there, some specific to governments and, and a lot of useful things that, that might be helpful. And of course, you can contact us with questions. You know, we're happy to, to take questions from people if, if they have any. So with that, I'm going to just thank everyone again for listening, sign off and see you again next time. Thanks. If you want more CRI insights or are interested in learning about our firm, please visit our website at CRICPA.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of It Figures, the CRI podcast. You can subscribe to It Figures on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. 